I heard a story about this fella who wanted his whole life to be a musician. He just, he just liked music, and he really wanted to be a part of this really famous orchestra that was in his town. The problem was that he had absolutely zero talent. And despite the fact that he had tried to learn to read music, he just wasn't capable. And so, because he was a rich fella, he decided uh, to get into the orchestra in a sort of backhanded kind of way. Instead of auditioning to be in the orchestra, he just showed up to the orchestra conductor one day and said, hey, I've got a big check in my pocket, and I will hand you that check, and it can be all yours if you'll just let me be a part of this orchestra. And so what he would do is he would show up each week at the performances of the orchestra, and he would get out his flute, and he would sit there with all the other flautists, and he would, he would just play away on that puppy, but he would never make a sound. And he did this for years. And everybody bragged on how great it was that he was part of this really important and grand uh, orchestra. He thought things were really going great. Until the day, that is, that the conductor of the orchestra died. And they hired somebody new. And when that person showed up, he thought for certain that he might be in trouble. But he made it a few concerts without any issue until that orchestra conductor said, you know, I've never really like listened to you all play as individuals. And it sure would be nice if I could hear you play, so I would know exactly who needs to be in each of these chairs. And so today, uh, we're going to do just that. We're going to start right over here, and it's at that moment that he knew he had been found out. That fellow's motto, no doubt, was just fake it till you make it. And I'll bet that a lot of you have been guilty of doing that kind of thing, too, I'll bet that because I've been guilty of it a lot of times, right? You just fake it till you make it, you know? You just pretend that you can do it and hope that along the way you'll finally learn how to be able to do it yourself. And I'm not saying that fake it till you make it is the worst advice. Sometimes it gets you through in a pinch, you know? But I am saying this, that at the end of the day, if you're going to try to fake it till you make it, one of two outcomes are certain. You're either going to grow enough that you learn how to actually do the skill and you don't have to fake it anymore. Or secondly, you are going to be a faker forever. Because at the end of the day, you either have to learn to do the thing you're pretending to do, or you're never going to be anything but a phony. That's actually what we're talking about today. We're talking about how it is that lots of folks try to phone it in in their relationship with Jesus. We're talking about how a lot of folks come to church and they do the same thing. They just try to fake it until they make it. And I'm not saying that's the worst thing to do. At least you're trying and putting your best foot forward, you know. But what I am saying is that you can't stay that way forever. You can't stay that way forever because one of those same two outcomes is still going to happen. You're either always and forever going to be a person who is a faker and never actually reach your potential as a follower of Jesus, or you're going to have to learn to grow in your faith in Christ. Now, last week we started this new series here called Lose the Weight, and the idea is that we are talking about how all of us as Christians need to have a check-in every now and again, you know? We all need to get on the proverbial bathroom scale and see how it is that we're doing with our diet. Just like we need to check in with our faith and see how it is that we're doing in our growth toward Jesus sometimes. 
And last week we talked about two important things, two important things that the Apostle Paul says in the book of Ephesians we need to work on and we need to check in on if we're wondering how well we're doing at growing in our maturity and our faith in Jesus. And so we said, first of all, that what we need to do is check on our relationships. Because one of the big keys, according to Paul, uh, when it comes to knowing how well you're doing in the faith is, are you unified with the fellow believers? And in fact, it's a special kind of unity. It's a unity that is based on faith in Jesus and knowledge about him. How well are you doing treating other people who are all trying to grow together in faith? Now, the second thing that we said last week is that if you want to have a a little check-in to see how you're doing with, with your faith and your growth in Jesus, what you need to do is you need to use your gifts, the gifts that God has given you to make the kingdom a better kind of place. Now, what happens if you become the kind of person who is careful to seek unity and use your gifts? Well, according to Paul, the ultimate result of that is that you become more and more mature in Jesus. Let me remind you of a passage that we actually read last week, but I want to read it to you again. This is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13. It says, This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. All of us working together are growing toward maturity. That fellow that day who was standing there in that orchestra beginning to sweat was finally called upon. And at that moment, he stood up to play the flute that he had no idea how to play, and that was when he had to face the music. And supposedly, that's actually where that little phrase comes from, that story. And probably all of us have been in the position where we have had to face the music. And so today, let's talk about that. Let's talk about what happens when we discover, after we do these little check-ins, after we get on the scale that maybe we're not where we're supposed to be in our faith. Let me read to you what it says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. It says, Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth. The Apostle Paul is a master of mixed metaphor. In fact, sometimes you read the things he says and you think to yourself, somebody really should have hired the Apostle Paul an editor because some of the things he says don't always make a lot of sense. And this is one of those cases. It's one of those cases where Paul is so excited to talk about immaturity that he throws metaphor after metaphor after metaphor at you to try to get you to get the point. And so here, he uses three different metaphors to talk about how it is that we're supposed to all grow in our faith. He talks about babies, he talks about boats, and he talks about scammers. He begins by talking about how babies are awfully easy to trick. No doubt, that's why people say that thing about how it's so easy to steal candy from a baby, right? And I guess, I've never tried to do that, but I guess it is easy to steal candy from a baby. 
babies are easy to trick. And Paul warns that many of us who are a part of the church, we might be so immature that we might as well be babies. And because of that, it's really easy for people to trick us and to get us believe that God's way is one way when in actuality God's way is a very different way. He goes on to talk about how that also makes us a little bit like boats. Boats, I imagine, on the Sea of Galilee. And there they are. Uh, full of fishermen who are trying to get their daily catch. And then the wind comes, and that boat is tossed around back and forth by the winds and the waves. And because we are so immature sometimes, because we're so easily tricked, what ends up happening is that we are tossed back and forth from one place to the other, just like a boat on the water, without ever being able to find any stability in our faith and in our lives. <coughs> he concludes the section by talking about how all of us are in danger of falling victim to scammers. Today it would probably be something like this. It would be something about a Nigerian prince, right, who's going to send you $5, and you could use that to deposit $5,000 in his account, and then after that he'll be happy to send you a million dollars as soon as his funds all get cleared up, right? I mean, you've got emails and text messages like this, haven't you? Some kind of scam that's trying to get you to push a button so they can get all your secret email, I mean, all your private uh, information so that they can then use that to steal your money. And Paul says that those of us who are Christians who haven't developed our faith are in danger of people like that. We're in danger of people coming in and tricking us into believing that God thinks one way about the world when in actuality God believes something very different. And so he says that all of us need to recognize that we are in danger and that we need to learn to grow up together in the faith. And so here's what he says in verse 15. He says, instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and is growing and is full of love. We grow up by building each other up in the faith. My daughter Callie turned 13 years old recently. I think she's in the nursery. She's not in here. She's helping out. But Callie tells me regularly that now that she is 13... She is an adult. And every time she tells me that, and I'll tell her right now, she's probably watching in there, she's wrong, okay? You're not an adult. But here's the thing about it. The reality is that despite the fact that Callie is not an adult, Callie actually does make some pretty adult decisions. She's pretty mature, I think. And see, that's the way it is with maturity. You assume that people mature with age, but that's not always the case, is it? Sometimes you find 16-year-olds who are more mature than their 40-year-old parents, right? Sometimes you find people who are 70 but act as though they're four or five. The reality is that you expect age and maturity to go together, but they don't always coincide. 
And it's like that when it comes to your faith in Jesus too. You expect people who have been a part of the church for 30 years to be much farther along in their maturity in the faith than somebody who's only been a Christian for a couple of months. But the reality is, <coughs> I'm so sorry, but that is not always the case. The reality is that often people get stunted in their growth when it comes to faith. And they spend years of their lives without ever developing or growing any closer to Jesus at all. And so Paul has some things to say to us, some reminders that we don't need to get stuck in that kind of a trap. Here's what he says in verse 17. He says, with the Lord's authority, I say this, live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Paul says that people who live in the church ought to live differently than people who are outside of the church. And he says that the reason we ought to do that is because the people who are on the, who are on the outside are often hopelessly confused. And what that means is that our faith, at least in part, begins with the renewal of our minds. It starts in our brains. We need to recognize that we need to think differently if we're ever going to learn to be different. And in fact, Paul goes on to add this to what he says in verse 18. He says, their minds are full of darkness. They wonder from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and have hardened their hearts against him. Now, I think that lots of people would be surprised to actually hear that verse from Paul. I think lots of people would be surprised to hear it because it's the opposite of what a lot of people assume Christians are supposed to be like. This says that Christians are supposed to have open minds and open hearts. Isn't it funny how often Christians are accused, though, of being people who are closed-minded and hard-hearted? No, that's not what the Bible wants at all. What the Bible wants is for us to be the kind of people who are open to exploring what's going on in the world, the kind of people who are open to understanding how it is that all the people around us behave, not because we want to act like them, not because we necessarily want to think like them, but instead because we love them, because we want to understand what's going on in their worlds and in their lives. We ought to be people who are open to reading what's going on and watching what's going on and hearing about what's going on so that we can interact with those people out there that we love. The reality is that the Apostle Paul knew a whole lot about the culture that was around him. He was a master at rhetoric. He often quotes the Greek philosophers. And he seems like one of those generally well-educated kind of people. And Jesus is not so different. In fact, Jesus often talks about or refers to or quotes people who not only are from the Bible, but also people who are talking in his community in his day. Christians ought to be open-minded people who are willing to listen. Open-minded people whose hearts are focused on Jesus. Now, Paul goes on after all this 
So let us know what happens when people don't do that last part and when they don't focus their hearts on Jesus. This is verse 19. He says, people like that have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and they eagerly practice every kind of impurity. What he says basically at the end of the day is that people who don't focus their hearts on Jesus end up thinking that everything goes and that you can do whatever you want and it's perfectly fine. He then goes on to give this long list of all of these different things that people like that often do. And I'm going to kind of hit the highlights and read some of them for you. I'm going to start in verse 25. It says, so stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. Don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. If you are a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to others in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will serve, that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and harsh words and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. And then in chapter 5, verse 3, let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. No doubt Paul believes that people who focus their hearts on Jesus are different than all the people out in the world who choose to harden their hearts against him. And yet, when I look over that long list of all of those things, that long list that includes things like not lying and not being angry and not being bitter, that long list that includes not being uh, slanderous or using harsh words or not forgiving, that long list that includes obscene stories and foolish talks and sexual morality, that long list that includes all of those things, I know without a doubt that sometimes I'm guilty of some of them. And I have a feeling that most of you can find a few things on that list that you're guilty of too. People who are in Christ should be different than the world, and yet that's not always the case, is it? And so Paul has some words for us. A reminder that we're supposed to be different than the people who are outside. And so going back to verse 20, here's what he says. He says, but that isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature. Throw off your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and your attitudes. 
And so once again, Paul picks up another metaphor to talk about how it is that we're all supposed to be growing in our faith in Jesus. And this time, he uses the metaphor of old dirty laundry. He says, you took off your old dirty clothes, your old life, and you threw it in the corner. Some of you probably throw it in the hamper, but I throw it in the corner, okay? And Kristen loves me for it. He says, take off that old dirty self and throw it away. And instead, put on this brand new outfit. Put on this brand new life. This brand new life in which you live holy and righteous. In fact, that's exactly what he says in verse 24. He says, put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Now that word holy gets a bad rap in the church sometimes. Because sometimes people confuse being holy with being holier than thou. But those aren't the same thing. Being holy simply means being different. It means being set apart for a special purpose. And that's exactly what each of you have been. Set apart by God to live a different kind of life than the rest of the world. Set apart to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Set apart so that you can bring the news of Jesus into a world that is often hopelessly confused. It all reminds me of a story that I heard. I think Charles Spurgeon was the one who actually told it in the first place, but about this lion and a tiger who loved to go hunting together. And every day, for years, they would meet early in the morning so that they could go out on a hunt and find some prey so that they could eat like kings for the day. And working as a team, this lion and this tiger, they could really get the job done, you know. Well, this worked great for a very long time, and they became very fast friends until the day that this angel showed up. And the angel said, I have chosen you, lion, for this special task. I want you to live as a different creature. And so as of today, I am changing you. No longer are you going to be a ferocious lion. Instead, I am going to turn you into a lamb. So that's exactly what the angel did. And there stood a lamb, and there stood a tiger. Now, you might expect that the tiger would immediately eat the lamb. But that's not what happens in this story, because you can't forget that the lamb, <coughs> who once was the lion, has been friends with this tiger for decades. And so the tiger says, I promise that I won't eat you so long as you promise that in the morning you'll still show up for our hunt so that we can catch a little prey together. And so that's exactly what they agreed to do. And the next morning the lamb shows up there at the right time and the right place in order to go on this hunt with this lion. But things for this lamb are different now than they've ever been before. And the lion says to the tiger, I, I just don't think that I can do this. It just doesn't feel right. I don't even want to eat meat. And I sure don't want to kill another animal. I think I'll just stay here and eat the grass around here. And you, you go on and 
find yourself something to eat. And when you find it, you bring it back here and we can enjoy our dinner together. And the tiger immediately says to the lamb, who do you think you are? For all of these years, we've been going out and hunting together. For all of these years, we've made a really great team. And now you're going to act like you're holier than I am because all of a sudden you don't kill other animals. Here, all of a sudden, you're going to act like you're better than me. And the lamb says, no, I don't think you understand. I cannot be what I am not. And I have been made into something brand new. And that's exactly how it is for those of us who are part of God's church. We cannot be what we are not. We've been made into something that is brand new. A brand new creation. A brand new creation in which we have been called to live differently than the rest of the world. A brand new creation in which we've been called to be people who are holy working toward being just like Jesus, all so that we can make his name famous in a world that is hopelessly confused. And so today, may we as a church be just that. People who work to build each other up as we grow toward maturity. Our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took some bread and he blessed it and he broke it. He shared it with all of his disciples and he said, take, eat, this is my body. That same night he took the cup and he blessed it and he poured it out and he shared it with all of his friends and he said, drink this all of you. This is the new covenant in my blood shed for the sins of the world. And so as a church, we're going to do exactly what our Lord Jesus asked us to do. We're going to eat this bread and drink this wine in order to remember him. In order to remember the one who died, in order that we could be made into something brand new. And this little meal becomes a symbol. Not only a reminder of what he did, but of the promises that we make to every day strive to grow to be just like Let's eat and drink together.